Welcome to another edition of Running the Race with Rob King. So glad that you're with us as we continue through the book of Revelation. And I'm not sure that we're going to get through all of this passage today. We've got a lengthy passage, Revelation chapter 11. Uh, We're going to go verses 1 through 14 is the goal, but I'm not really sure that we're going to make it. Let me give you a little bit of a recap to tell you where we are. Uh, The seven letters were written, of course, right? The rapture of the church happened. And then we've got the seven seals. Who's who's able to open these seals? The title deed to the universe. But a lamb who was slain, who's also a lion who reigns. So Jesus walks across, you know, in front of John in this vision. Basically, uh, there's 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 this lamb that was slain, but the lion who reigns, and he walks across and he grabs the. Uh, the scroll from the angel who asks the question, who is able to open the scroll? And then everyone worships the Lord Jesus. He's able to open the scroll and break its seals. It's an old uh, way of writing, of course, in a scroll wrapped and then sealed seven times. And then these seals are broken, and each one of them have a different level of judgment over the time of the tribulation of seven years. And the last three are severe, really severe. They're gaining in severity. So it's compared to a woman in childbirth, right? So the tribulation begins, and it's bad, and then it goes on, and it gets more and more severe. So you have these seven seals being broken, each one of them a different judgment on the earth that God is bringing. And so the seventh seal then introduces seven trumpets, These get progressively worse. They're rapid fire. And the fifth, sixth, and seventh of the trumpets are even worse. And out of the seventh trumpet is going to come seven bowls. So there's a lot of revelation is just describing the torment that's going on as God judges the earth. So there is uh, this seventh trumpet that's going to blow. And then the seven, uh, so there's the seven trumpets. Let me go back. Seven seals, then the seven trumpets, and from the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls. Are you still with me right now? Okay. In between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, that's where we are right now. There's this interlude that's going on, and then we're going to be told of these two witnesses. This is why I'm not sure that we're going to get through all of this. There's an interlude, a pause, and this happens a few times in the book of Revelation when God is basically giving a period of grace, a rest note, if you will, one that, that is, it is communicating to His people who are being saved, because remember, throughout the tribulation, there are people still coming to Christ. God's elect still being called from the four corners of the earth. He's speaking in this interlude, basically, of a time of mercy, um, that God is still compassionate. He cares for those who know Him, right? So there's this interlude. That's where we're at right now. The seventh trumpet has not blown, and that is going to be even more traumatic. And we keep saying that because they keep getting worse, and you just think it can't get any worse, and then it does get worse. The judgment of God in tribulation. But we're in this interlude right now between the sixth and seventh trumpet. When the seventh trumpet blows, there are seven bowls, and we're going to describe all of that as we go forward. But, but first, we're in this interlude. God gives a gracious reprieve, a moment, a pause, an interlude, 
and then he introduces the ministry of these two preachers in Jerusalem, the two witnesses. That's what we're going to try to describe today, but let me read Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 14. It's a lengthy passage. Listen to this. Here's John speaking. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. That's three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon all those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud And their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, that is a lengthy passage, but here's, here's what we know about the Lord God. He has always called prophets to proclaim his truth. There have always been, uh, throughout the history uh, of the world with God's people, there were men that God called to prophesy, Elijah, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, and the list goes on. God has always had, no matter how wicked, no matter how evil, he always has a remnant of people that are his, that belong to him. I think of what it says in Jeremiah chapter 44. It said, I sent you all my servants, the prophets, again and again, saying, Oh, do not do this abominable thing which I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ears to turn from their wickedness so as not to burn sacrifices to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and burned in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, so they have become a ruin and a desolation as it is to this day. That's just one example of the prophets who were always warning. Some of them were called to live in a manner that their life, looking at their life, was a picture of what 
God felt towards his people, that he had been rejected, that he had been cheated on by his people, but he was longing to know them. He was longing uh, to have their heart. And this is even what uh, Paul wrote uh, to the Romans in Romans 9. Uh, He said, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. So there is a promise to the people of Israel that there is a future revival that is going to happen. Some people use this understanding of Revelation and even Romans 9 to say that the people of Israel right now are totally 100% isolated and protected from anything that could ever happen to them by God. That's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says there will be a remnant, and then promises that there will be people in Israel uh, that will be a part of a a great end-time harvest, a revival of Jews coming to know the Messiah in numbers never seen before. As we know, and I have friends that are missionaries in Israel, there are, there are few Christians in Jerusalem. There are very few Christians in the nation of Israel, but the Word of God promises that in the tribulation there will be a massive revival. In the darkest hour in the, in the tribulation, God is going to do what God always does. He's going to raise up these two witnesses, two witnesses because it's in the mouth of of two witnesses that something is confirmed. Now, their ministry, according to the book of Revelation, will go from the midpoint of the tribulation all the way to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And we're going to see that in this chapter. First, though, John is a part, again, of the vision that he's seeing. And there's this measurement that happens. There will be given me a measuring rod like a staff, which would be a reed that would be a 15 to 20 foot reed that grows in that region. Typically in that time that would have been used for, been great to use for measuring. It's like a rod or a staff. And he would have been given that in the vision to measure something out. Sometimes in Scripture, uh, the prophets would be asked to measure something in order to measure out what space is going to be judged by God. In this case, John is given this read in order to measure out the possession of God. The point is not the dimensions. God is not measuring this to find out how many feet by how many you know feet or anything like that. He's he's giving an illustration to say this is my possession. He, he, he sometimes marks out things for judgment or destruction, but in this case, he's marking something out to say, this is mine. This is what I own. These people belong to me. This would have been, I mean, this would have been something for John to experience because it, it was only a quarter of a century before this when all of Jerusalem was destroyed in uh, around AD 70, where the temple was completely destroyed and over a million Jews were, were killed. But there is this thing that John is seeing in the vision now, this incident, this time when God is going to restore Israel. He's going to save them. This would have been something for John to see. These worshipers in John's vision are basically a, a, a remnant, a group of believing Jews during the tribulation. 
See, he's saying, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship in it. These are Jews who are experiencing salvation in the tribulation. So the the temple then that he sees would have been uh, considered the fourth temple. If you remember, uh, there was the the first temple that Solomon built, Zerubbabel built the second, Herod the third, uh, Herod built the third temple, if you remember, and then the fourth temple is the one that, that would be seen in this vision, and then, of course, there's another one that's going to be built uh, in the new millennium. During the tribulation, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt it, uh, without going into a lot of detail. And, and uh, even if you travel to Jerusalem now, you'll find people who are there planning on this rebuilding effort. And um, the Antichrist will at first allow this to happen during the tribulation, and then he will tire of them not worshiping him and what will take place then is he will desecrate the temple and require that he himself will be worshipped. This is something that you may have been wondering about in Scripture. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But basically, there's going to be a revival among the Jews. They're going to reinstitute temple worship. It's going to create a great curiosity about the Messiah. This is prophesied, by the way, in Zechariah. Let me read this prophecy. Uh, concerning the Jews. Uh, He said, He's going to pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimon, in the plain of Megiddo, the land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. And all of these families, in that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. So Zechariah here is foretelling about a time that is, during the tribulation, when there will be a massive revival that's going to take place. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the people, uh, the, like I said, the, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and the Jews are going to be worshiping at the temple again, something that would be unthinkable right now, but they're back worshiping, and then there's going to be this massive revival And the Antichrist, who is going to be encouraging the reinstitution of this worship, will then, like I said, grow tired of that and want to be worshipped himself, and the abomination of desolation will take place. If you've ever wondered what that is about, the abomination of desolation, which you read about in Daniel and also in the Gospels, that is when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple— as the one to be worshipped. He desecrates the temple, sets himself up as the one to be worshipped. And so 
it, here's what it says in Scripture in Matthew. It says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath." This is taught. Have you ever wondered what that is about? The, the abomination of desolation? So, what happens is the Jews who were encouraged to rebuild their temple, and this happens during the tribulation, then the Antichrist goes into the temple, somehow desecrates the temple, places himself up as the one to be worshiped, and now there is incredible persecution that, that causes these Jews to flee. And they're caused to flee in the tribulation. So then we switch from there, which let me pause for just a moment. We're we're painting this picture of the Jews who are going to go through a massive revival, the temples being rebuilt. Just think for a moment. uh, This is something that uh, MacArthur brings out, and I I think this is really important. Uh, Perhaps an argument uh, can be made in this that, that this is just further proof that the the rapture has already taken place. We believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. We believe that Scripture teaches that. But in this, let me just mention this. There is a, a difference that's made, a distinction that's made in this vision between Jews and Gentiles. So there's this stark difference throughout this vision that is, that is this difference between Jews and Gentiles. And as you read this, you see the distinction of Jews and Gentiles. Why is that important? Because in salvation, Jews and Gentiles, there there no longer is that difference. Can't go into all the details. Let Let me read a scripture that makes this clear from Ephesians. Paul writes, Christ is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and having put to death the enmity. My point is this, that when we see the distinction being made in this vision between Jews and Gentiles, we could say this is not talking about the church. And we know that there is no mention of the church in all of these passages, all of these chapters, where we're, where we're talking and dealing with the tribulation. The church will come back into focus around, I think, chapter 19. We'll have to stay with the podcast to see. Okay, let's talk about the two messengers. We may be able to fit this in one podcast. The two messengers. He said he's going to give authority to two witnesses. And let me just go through these this passage. He's going to give authority to two witnesses, and they're going to prophesy for 1260 days. They're called witnesses. This is basically, the word is martyr. These two witnesses are, as I said, required because they two people can give a testimony and verify that it's true. They're, when it says they're prophesying, they are speaking forth, preaching, proclaiming the truth of God's Word. It's not a, a foretelling of the future. In this case especially, it is just that they are preaching the gospel. They are preaching 1,260 days, three and a half years. 
the half the last half of this tribulation period and probably right along the lines where the antichrist is in power now they are not symbolic of preachers they are actual preachers they are actual human bodies they're people that are there they're clothed in sackcloth it says which is obviously that they're mourning they're in distress they're grieving they have humility. They uh, are mourning over the fact that there's this sinful world being that it refuses to repent before Almighty God, and all of the judgments and all of the torment that they're facing is dreadful, and yet they won't repent. And they they put on sackcloth as an object lesson. Uh, they're just sorrowful over this unbelieving world. Now, it doesn't say who they are. It says the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, there, there may be reason, let's see, this really symbolizes the light, olive oil, revival. They are, they are proclaiming the truth in the midst of all of this darkness. They are, now some have suggested perhaps they are Moses and Elijah. Interesting. Could it be that they're Moses and Elijah? This The Scripture doesn't say. This is a bit of speculation. But some of the reason that some people say that it could be Moses and Elijah is because of the miracles that they're going to perform. They're basically given the ability to perform any miracle that is necessary. And a lot of the miracles that are mentioned are miracles that Moses and Elijah took part in. Also, there is this idea in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition that expects Moses and Elijah to return in the future, okay? Third, uh, both Moses and Elijah, they were the ones that were with Christ in the transfiguration, if you remember. So you think, well, that kind of makes sense. And lastly, they all died, they both died in very... uh, odd ways, where they were taken up into heaven. We never saw them taste death. So them coming back, perhaps. I mean, we don't know. This is speculation, but there are some reasons that it could be Moses and Elijah. At any rate, if anybody wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouth and destroys them. This is not uncommon. There's no reason not to to think that this is actual real fire that happens. That happens in Scripture. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes. God destroys things with fire. It, It happens. So there will be people that will oppose them, but they won't be able to kill them. They will kill their enemies as their enemies try to kill them. And undoubtedly, there will be many people who will try to kill them, but they won't be able to. They have power to stop it from raining. They have power to to destroy. They have power over the waters and to, to, to cause them to turn into blood and the earth with every plague as often as they desire. So they've been given power. And then... They're going to be killed only after they've finished their testimony, the Word says. So God's purpose will be completed, and then a beast will come up out of the abyss and make war with them. Now, this is not Satan, because Satan will be introduced as a dragon, but this is a a demon-influenced, demon-possessed beast uh, uh, that, that opposes them and kills them. And and their dead bodies are going to be in the city of Jerusalem for three and a half days, displayed, which is the ultimate form of disdain, right, and disgrace. 
So the bodies there are displayed. The earth is rejoicing because this fallen world hates the, hates the message, hates the truth, hates the miracles, hates the ability. They can't get rid of this witness, and they actually rejoice. They rejoice all over the world. This is the only time, ironically, that, that, that rejoicing takes place in, uh, in all of the tribulation, in all of revelation. They're going to celebrate and they're going to send gifts to one another because the two prophets who tormented them uh, no longer dwell on the earth. However, the story takes another dramatic turn, and the dramatic turn is after three and a half days— Just imagine what this will be like on TV. All of this drama unfolding. All of this drama unfolding. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. Picture that for a minute. Men who've been dead for three and a half days rise to their feet with the breath of God in their lungs. Can you imagine how many times this will be shown over and over again? But not only that, then a loud voice from heaven says, come up here, and then they go up in a cloud, and their enemies watch them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Some say that the 7,000 people who were killed were the inner, uh, how do you want to say, leaders of the governmental established uh, authorities by the Antichrist, that they would die in that moment. So the rest who were saved from their preaching glorified God and gave glory to God who is in heaven. Now it says at the end of this, this scene is incredible. These witnesses preach, perform miracles, fire comes out of their mouth and destroys their enemies. They're killed, they're put on display for three and a half days, and then God puts breath back in their lungs and they ascend into heaven in front of the whole world, and Christians that have been saved through their ministry are rejoicing. It says, one, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming, which is, so there's the fifth seal, sixth seal, seventh seal, or sorry, the fifth trumpet, sixth trumpet, seventh trumpet. So the, the, the... The third woe is coming, which is the seventh trumpet, and out of the seventh trumpet, the seven bowls. This is the worst yet. But just before this happens, here's this glorious interlude, and the interlude is concluded with the joy of people worshiping Almighty God. They've been saved during the tribulation, even in the midst of the greatest pain and the greatest suffering. God is gracious, God is kind, and He is saving His elect. What a glorious God we serve. So, Father, we thank you. Thank you that you are compassionate and long-suffering, full of grace and mercy and truth. God, I pray that you would help us today to live in your truth. Lord, thank you that your word is true. You, your word is reasonable. Your word makes sense. Father, I pray that those who are listening today who, who do not know you, God, that uh, if it be your will that you would save them today. Father, help those of us who do know you to live in a, in a way where our life would be marked by the fear of God, seeking your wisdom and your truth and your righteousness to bring you glory in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.